This e-multiple sclerosis review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Emerging data is suggesting that the early use of highly effective MS medications will have better lifetime outcomes on the patient's disability levels. And by use of highly effective medicine early in disease, our hope is to prevent permanent neurologic disability from ever taking place. Selecting the right DMT. Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. The choice of a disease-modifying therapy for a patient with MS is becoming more complicated. There are new DMT options available. There's new data to consider. How can you know which treatment is right for which patient? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Aaron Longbreak, Assistant Professor of Neurology and Director of the Multiple Sclerosis Fellowship Program at Yale University. For Dr. Longbreak's disclosures, as well as additional CME information, please go to our website, emultiplesclerosisreview.org, and click on the Volume 3, Issue 6 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Longbreak, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Bob. I'm delighted to be here. Our first learning objective focuses on the difference between an induction versus an escalation approach to MS management, and in particular, how that choice can affect medication selection. So start us out in the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Longbreak, for the patient scenario. I'm going to start with a 19-year-old African-American male who has just been diagnosed with relapsing multiple sclerosis after he had an episode of transverse myelitis. He's currently in the hospital recovering and is requiring a cane to get around at the moment. Clearly, he needs to start long-term treatment for his MS. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you talked about case-level variables, things like disease activity, disability, immune status, and how important they can be when selecting an appropriate therapy. Expand on that a little bit for us, if you would, please. These individual patient characteristics... How do they connect to which MS therapy to recommend? The multiple sclerosis therapy landscape is definitely becoming ever more complex, and most of the medications themselves haven't been compared head-to-head to one another. So a decision about which medicine to choose for any given person isn't going to depend just on how effective that medication is. Really, certain patient characteristics help us select which medicine or which type of medicine is going to be the best choice for that person over the long haul. Certain characteristics that patients may have represent risk factors for their multiple sclerosis just overall being more aggressive. For example? Patients who are male, patients who are African-American race, individuals who have spinal cord disease, All of those things would be risk factors for that individual going on to have a more severe course of multiple sclerosis, put them at high risk of disability over their lifetime, even early after their diagnosis. And so for that group of patients, we would want to put them on highly effective treatment as soon as we can. We would want to choose a more aggressive route of treatment. Additionally, no medicine is going to work if the patient has not bought into the medication and if the patient is not going to take the medication. Taking the medicine is definitely a prerequisite for the medicine being effective. So we want to get an understanding for who our patients are. What is their lifestyle? What matters to them? And for some people, 
safety is paramount in their minds and they feel very uncomfortable with medications that don't have a very good safety profile. For other patients, perhaps they travel a lot for work and they want something that's convenient to take with them that they can take on their schedule without needing to come in for infusions, for example, or without needing to take an injectable medication on a plane. And so these would be important things to know when making a treatment decision. So it's the job of the physician to work with the patient in a shared decision-making process to learn who the patient is, to combine that with what we know about their disease based on their risk factors, and to combine those things into a, a treatment approach that is right for that individual patient. These are the kind of things you really need to know to individualize therapy. Historically, MS physicians tended to start with older, safer medications, the interferon medications or glutarium or acetate, and they would start with these medicines and only escalate therapy if or when the patient got worse. They had relapses, they accumulated disability, they just overall things got worse. The trouble with that approach is that once neurologic damage from MS has taken place, there's really no eraser that we can go in and remove that damage. In fact, our best chance at helping people to go on to lead normal lives for as long as possible is to prevent that damage from taking place in the first place. So emerging data is suggesting that the early use of highly effective MS medications will have better lifetime outcomes on the patient's disability levels. So the other treatment approach, which is becoming more prevalent among MS specialists, is to choose a highly effective medication as soon as one is confident about the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And by use of highly effective medicine early in disease, our hope is to prevent permanent neurologic disability from ever taking place and to keep patients living a normal life indefinitely in an ideal world. What about safety considerations? Many of these highly effective medicines actually do have very good safety profiles and can be deployed earlier in the disease course for most patients without adverse consequences. I want to focus specifically on our learning objective, which is the difference between induction therapy and escalation therapy. Uh, start us out with some definitions, please. What is induction therapy for MS? Induction therapy refers to an overall strategy of treating extremely aggressively at the onset of disease with potent medications that are really meant to be short-term treatments. And with the true induction therapies, what these medicines are going to do is to effectively wipe out the immune system and do a hard reset. We can think of that just as being a reboot of the system. We are going to erase all of the immune cells that were causing problems and reboot them with fresh cells from the bone marrow. All right, so that's simple. It's easy. Let's extend that definition now to medications. Which medications would be most appropriate for this induction approach? The two medications that right now are true induction therapies would be alemtuzumab and cladribine. This is the best examples of medicines approved for MS that are really induction strategies. Both of these medications are used for two years. And at that point, after that two-year period is over, the patients stop taking their MS therapies and there is no plan to reinstitute MS therapy unless their disease comes back. Both of these medications require very stringent safety monitoring both during and after their use. 
and that has, in some sense, limited their usability in the general MS population. For example, alentuzumab requires monthly blood monitoring for five years after the first dose. Cladribine also requires long-term blood monitoring. And so the safety implications of these two medications have limited their use for just general MS patients. That being said, they are very good medications. An additional medication, which could be possibly considered something of an induction approach, would involve B-cell depleting medications. These include rituximab, ocrelizumab, and soon, ofatumumab. These are also highly effective medications for MS that reboot part of the immune system. And so one might call them more of a modified induction, but no one has yet shown how long these medicines continue to be effective after they're stopped. And so unlike the two I mentioned first, B-cell medicines are typically used on an ongoing basis with no plans to stop the medicines. Okay, so that's induction therapy. Compare that for us, if you would please, to escalation therapy for MS. The escalation approach is the historical model, where these safer but potentially less effective medicines were the first line of attack, the first ones that a patient was given. So the older injectable medications, including the interferon medications and glutaramer acetate, along with most of the oral medications currently available, would make up the backbone of patient treatments when this treatment strategy is being used. If and when a patient had an inadequate response to these medications, some of the infusible medications like natalizumab and the B-cell depleting medications would be used as the next step up if that first line of treatment that was more conservative failed. Is there any consensus on which approach is appropriate for most patients? What does the evidence show? So the evidence is being accumulated. There are several clinical trials ongoing, which are comparing these two treatment strategies to get a better quality of evidence to guide treatment recommendations. At the moment, the best evidence suggests that early treatment of MS will have better outcomes, and there's high-quality level of evidence to support that. And the early use of highly effective medication is becoming more and more established. So uh, large case series and use of observational databases have all supported the early use of highly effective medications as being a more effective way to use these medicines as opposed to waiting until late in the disease. Thank you for bringing us that case, Dr. Longbreak. Let's take a moment now to review our discussion in light of our learning objective. Explain how the differences between the induction and escalation approaches to MS treatment can affect the choice of appropriate medications. What are the key things our listeners need to know? So first off, I would say the listeners can recognize that there just isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to MS therapy. Individual patient characteristics are very important and really have to be considered for long-term treatment success. Any medication that's chosen, the patient has to buy in and be willing to participate in the treatment. The next thing is to realize that the field has been changing. The escalation strategy that was used in the past has faded, and more and more practitioners have begun prescribing highly effective medications like ocrelizumab early in the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway to compare escalation and induction approaches and to improve the level of evidence behind the principles of MS treatment. And true induction strategies 
like alentuzumab or cladribine, are available, but likely won't be appropriate for every single patient due to the safety and monitoring issues surrounding these medications. At the moment, current data supports that the early use of highly effective medicines is likely to achieve the best long-term results for patients. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Aaron Longrick from Yale University in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice, and it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up With a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you, and please stay safe. Welcome back to this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Aaron Longbreak from Yale University about how the approach to MS management affects medication selection. Let's turn now to our second learning objective, which is about the safety and efficacy of the newly approved oral MS therapies. Uh, so if you would please, Dr. Longbreak, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. So for this case, let's consider a 37-year-old woman with relapsing MS who began treatment with dimethylfumarate about two weeks ago. Since starting this medication, she has experienced severe stomach pain, nausea, and diarrhea, and she's also had intermittent hot flashes and skin flushing. She wants to stop. So you've brought us a situation where a medication's side effects seem to be causing more harm than good. Just how big a problem are side effects from MS medications? Well, that really depends on the medication. Each medicine for MS has its own mechanism of action and its own side effect profile. Some medications have quite a few side effects for some people and none at all for other people. Other medications are just not as prone to side effects and patients are less likely to have side effects to them. But that being said, side effects remain a very common reason for patients to either be non-compliant with or to discontinue their therapy. And going back to what I said earlier, nothing is going to work if the patient isn't taking it. So it's very important to think about side effects of medications and to manage them. So what should the clinician do when medication side effects occur? What's your best advice, doctor? Pay attention to it. Asking the patient about side effects is an important part of the visit. There are often things that can be done to modify the treatment such that the patient starts to be able to tolerate it a little better. Sometimes these are just lifestyle changes. Lifestyle changes, such as? For example, the stomach problems that I mentioned earlier might be mitigated if the patient took their medication with food that was a high-protein meal. So that simple things like that can help. Other times, additional medications are needed to treat side effects. So, for example, flushing from dimethylfumarate may be mitigated by having the patient take a baby aspirin daily. But other times, these tricks don't work, and side effects can be a completely valid reason to completely change the patient's MS drug. Again, we want these medicines to improve the quality of life over the long haul. And even if the medicine prevents relapses for the next five years, if it's making the patient miserable every single day, it's not worth it. There are other options, and you may want to make another choice. So MS medications, remember, these are for the long term. 
if their medication is making the patient absolutely miserable in the short term, you need to reconsider your approach. So with that as a lead-in, doctor, let's talk about two of the newer oral medications. How are they different from what's come before? So these medications are second-generation medicines. They are similar to the original medicines in that class, Fingolimod, but they were designed to be more selective. So let me just delve into that a little bit more. This class of medicines binds the sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors. In the original medicine, Fingolimod, bound receptors number 1, 3, 4, and 5. So it bound to four out of the five sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors. The newer medicines, Zepanamod and Ozanamod, bind only S1PR, so sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors, 1 and 5. So they are more selective than the original medicine. They also have shorter half-lives, which means they stay in the system for a little bit less time and will wash out faster. These chemical changes to the medicines appear to decrease the cardiac risk of the medication, and that has made them more convenient to use since most patients going on these medicines no longer require prolonged medical monitoring with their first dose. The shorter half-lives of these medications also means that their effect on the blood cells will be shorter-lived. Over the long haul, this may ultimately mean that these are safer medicines that have less risk of infection. However, the new medicines have not been used in enough patients or for long enough to know for sure if that is going to be the case. Comparing the two medications, saponamod and ozanamod, is one better than the other? Again, what does the evidence say? Well, that's a great question and one which a lot of people have been asking. There are no direct comparisons between these medicines in terms of either their side effects or their effectiveness. So saponamod versus ozanamod, we don't really know which will be more effective. And honestly, it's likely that they're equivalent in terms of their effectiveness. Ozanamod may end up being more convenient for some people to use, again, because it has fewer requirements for testing blood and monitoring patients as they get started on the medicine. But it ultimately is likely that the specific member of this class of medicines that is chosen in practice will be heavily influenced by a given patient's insurance company's preferred drug list. Talk to us about another of the newer oral MS medications. Deroximal fumarate. What's new about it? What's different about it? And what's the evidence saying? So deroximal fumarate is very similar to dimethyl fumarate, which is a medicine approved for MS as of 2013. Both of these medicines rapidly break down upon ingestion to the same active component, which is monomethyl fumarate or MMF. In the clinical trials of deroximal fumarate versus dimethyl fumarate, the patients taking the newer medicine, deroximal fumarate, had significantly fewer days of GI side effects when we compared them to the patients taking dimethyl fumarate, the original medicine. So in the clinical trial, again, 4.8% of patients discontinued the older medicine, dimethyl fumarate, because of these GI side effects, nausea, stomach pain, diarrhea. Less than 1%, so 0.8%, decreased the deroximal fumarate for the same reasons. In terms of effectiveness, however, there are no data that suggests that deroximal fumarate is any more effective for treating MS when compared to the older medications. Thank you, Dr. Longbreak. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective, the safety and efficacy profiles of the newly approved oral MS therapies. 
What are the key things our listeners should be taking away from our discussion? First off, most of the newly approved oral MS medications, including siponimod, ozanimod, and diroximal fumarate, are very similar to older medications that have been on the market for the last 5-10 years. The improvements in these newer medications generally relate to their safety and tolerability and not to their effectiveness. There are no data that support improved efficacy for any of these second-generation medicines as compared to their older first-generation versions. Ultimately, we do expect that insurance companies are likely to play a major role in which oral medication is ultimately selected for a given patient. Dr. Aaron Longbrick from the Neurology Department at Yale University, thank you for sharing your insight and expertise with us in this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. It's my pleasure, Bob. And for e-multiple sclerosis review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ems.dkb.com. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated, the Genzyme Organization, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.